Acts 16 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 13 through 40 this morning. Uh, This series, Philippians, um, Philippians is perhaps one of the most quoted books in the entire Bible. Um, Philippians uh, verses are always on coffee mugs and bumper stickers and Bible covers and tweets, and they're everywhere. And people will often, uh, sadly, take them out of context. And so what we often get is sound bites of the book of Philippians. But I want to tell you that within context and understanding what the book really means, man, there is some great, beautiful, glorious, rich theological truths that are life-changing um, in this book. And so my, my goal in this as we move forward is that we would see what Paul was really after uh, when he wrote this book to a really precious people to him. And, that, and that, that idea is this, that living for Christ, truly living for Christ, will bring you more, more joy than anything else. Truly living for Christ will bring you more joy than anything else. This book is unique in in so many ways. And one of the ways that the book is unique is the fact that Paul wrote it while he was being held by a Roman authority. Uh, Some people believe that Paul was actually in prison when he wrote that. Uh, That's not exactly the case. He was actually on something like house arrest. And house arrest for this culture is not like house arrest in our culture, where house arrest for us means, man, we get like a GPS bracelet on our our ankle, but we can still like do things like you know, go out to restaurants and go to Disney World if we want, and we just have the curfew or something like that. It's not like that in Philippi. In fact, house arrest meant that uh, Paul would have been chained to a prison guard, and he was chained to a prison guard because he would not stop preaching the gospel. And they finally caught up to Paul after all these years of faithful gospel ministry, and he's chained to a, a prison guard 24 hours a day. And you think about that, as these uh, guards are chained to him, they're switching shifts. They're all hearing the gospel from Paul. And also think about just how weird that is, right? I mean, me, I'm an introvert. This would be the worst, my worst nightmare. Having someone chained to me, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't go to the restroom. Someone is chained to you all day long. And so as he's chained to this prison guard, And every prison guard, this would be during the time of Nero, which hated Christianity and wanted to destroy the church, was a major threat to the church. And so he's chained this prison guard, and each prison guard has a four-hour shift. And as they have a four-hour shift, Paul is just consistently sharing the gospel to them. And then later, and we'll see this even in Philippians, that many of these prison guards become believers because Paul is chained to them. I would hate, if I was a non-believer, to be chained to Paul, right? And so as he's chained to this prison guard, he begins to say, how, think, how can I creatively share the gospel? How can I continue to make an impact? Because Paul wasn't clearly as mobile as he was before. And so what Paul does is he begins to write. And he begins to write to some of his closest and dearest friends. And who he begins to write to is really the church of Philippi. And I love Paul's creativity here because uh, one of my heroes in church history is a guy named John Bunyan. He was uh, really a pastor, writer, gospel preacher in the 1600s. And uh, John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, my favorite book outside of the Bible. I love 
Pilgrim's Progress, encourage you to, to read that book. And how that book was actually written was really similar to how uh, Philippians was written. Uh, John Bunyan was, again, a gospel preacher, stood up for major theological truths like the inerrancy of Scripture and the sovereignty of God. And many people hated the things that uh, John Bunyan preached, so that just like Paul, they threw him in prison. And John Bunyan, as he's in prison, he would get a chance to walk out into the courtyard on recess as a, as a prisoner. And he would go out into the courtyard, um, as in the prison courtyard, he would begin to preach. And so people would hear him all around the, the prison walls, and they would come to the prison walls to hear John Bunyan preach the gospel. And crowds and crowds of people would, would gather around the prison wall as John Bunyan would preach the gospel over the prison walls. And then they began to not allow John Bunyan to have recess anymore. So they begin to say, okay, you got to stay in your prison cell. And then as he's in his prison cell, he's sharing the gospel with his fellow prisoners. And then they hate that too. Man, we got to put this guy in solitary confinement. And so they put John Bunyan in solitary where he can have no contact with anybody, but they made uh, one mistake. They gave him a Bible. They allowed him to have Fox's Book of Martyrs which I think is another great book that everyone should have. It's a story about different people and how they've died for uh, the faith. And they let, allow him to write, which is a huge mistake. So what does he do? Well, he writes Pilgrim's Progress. And he writes Pilgrim's Progress, which is really an allegorical story of how the gospel can change a person's life and how you can be free from the burden of sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. And now it's one of the most popular books of all time. Um, Pilgrim's Progress. And so you have this picture of John Bunyan doing this, and I think he did that because he was inspired by Paul. Paul, as he's chained to this imperial guard, and as he has four-hour shifts chained to a different guard, he writes, and he writes passionately to people that he really loves, the church of Philippi. So the question is, okay, why does he love these people so much? Well, I want you to see that, but here's what he's doing as he's writing to them. He's reflecting on the relationship that he, ha- he had with them when he started the church of Philippi. He's reflecting on all their generosity and all their care and all their love. And not only that, but he's writing to them knowing that the persecution that Paul is going through, they are soon going to face the same persecution. And so it's important for Paul, listen, you're going to face a, a difficult time. You're gonna, people are going to tell you that the Christ is not true and the gospel is not real. And so what he wants them to do more than anything is to just have joy in Christ and to treasure Christ above everything else. And so he's writing this book, Philippians, for that reason. And so here's the whole reason why we're in Acts 16 this morning. Because Acts 16 tells the story of Paul's introduction to the Philippian people, to Philippi. It's Paul um, on his missionary travels with his friend Silas, with his friend Luke, and they run across these people that they preach the gospel to. And this is the beginning of how the church at Philippi was started. So I I want you to see this in Acts 16 for for several reasons. First of all, I want you to know the context. I want you to actually see and try to picture and try to get a feel and a a smell of who these uh, people are and why they are so dear to his heart. And I do that because there's something genuine about when you see how something began. 
I don't know if you've ever read an autobiography or or a movie or seen a movie about how something got started or how a company got started or how a brand got started, how a movement got started. But there's something real and raw and authentic that you want to be a part of. I just watched the movie. um, Anybody seen Founder recently? It's on Netflix now. It's kind of one of those movies like, okay, you're done watching The Office for the 10th time and you're like, what's a movie? Okay, that keeps popping up as a recommendation. So I guess I'll watch that. And so I watched it, and it's the beginning of how, you know, it's how McDonald's got started. And so there's something there that you're kind of drawn to the story, and you, as you see the golden arches now, you, you not only think about something that you shouldn't eat, um, but you start thinking about the story, and you're drawn into the story. And so this is why I want you to see how the church of Philippi began, because I want you to be drawn into the story. I want you to see when Paul's telling a people to have joy in Christ, this is who he's talking to. But not only that, and more importantly, this is what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see is that Paul, as he preaches the gospel to these people, the kind of people that God uses to build his church and I think as we see this this morning, as we, as we get a picture of all that God's doing, my, 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 thing, my hope is that you're going to be surprised and shocked. Because what you're going to find is that as God builds his church, he doesn't need the smartest people. He doesn't need the most talented people. He doesn't need even the most spiritual people. Rather, my hope is that you'll see this, that what God does when he builds a church is he calls ordinary people And he transforms them through the gospel, and they end up doing extraordinary things for the kingdom. And so we're going to look at three different characters here in Acts 16 of how God built his church in Philippi. And we're going to hopefully identify with some of these characters, and and hopefully we'll leave here as a more united body of believers ready to do God's work. So Acts 16, y'all ready? We good? Wow, okay. Can I say go pirates again? Would that get you back? Okay, okay. Yeah, there he is. Thank you. Acts 16, 11. We'll start there. Um, here's what Luke records of this event of how the church of Philippi began. So, setting sail to Troas, we made a direct voyage to a place I cannot pronounce, and it has nothing to do with the story. So we'll keep going. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So we learn a little bit about Philippi just in that statement. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, we see Lydia here as the first character that Luke identifies as he's writing this, as, as Paul begins to communicate to. And we know that Lydia was most likely a wealthy woman. She was a seller of fine purple uh, linens. Um, she was a pirate fan, clearly. And, um, and so she's from this place, Thyatira, which is in Asia. And so imagine her. She's a woman in the fashion industry. She's kind of like Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada, right? Not that I've ever seen that movie, but it's what I've heard that she's in that movie. And, and so she's this incredible 
incredibly wealthy woman, which is interesting. It shows you that God's at work in a, in a church plan. How often do you see a church get started and the first person you meet is a wealthy person? Um, most of the time, your first 200 people in a church plan, they're all poor people. This is a, a wealthy woman, so clearly God's at work, right? And if you're here and you're a wealthy person, we have a building that we're trying to uh, renovate and um, we accept any gift. Um, this passage tells us about this woman. Not only is she a wealthy woman, not only is she, is she in the fashion industry, not only is she successful and she's probably intimidating, but the text tells us that she's a worshiper of God. And this doesn't necessarily mean that she is a Christian. A worshiper of God is, is similar to like how we say a worshiper of God or believes in God in our culture. It's kind of like, uh, like a recent study that just went out um, not, not long ago that 98% of our generation believes that there is a God. However, not very many of us uh, show any loyalty to any God. So it's very similar. Like she has this affinity with a God, which means she probably most likely would have rejected the idea of, uh, of polytheism, the worship of many of God. She, she most likely didn't have, believe in anything obscure, like, like a believing in a tree God or anything like that. But it really means that she's open to the things of God. It really means that she's a person who is seeking truth. Now, as she's seeking truth, Paul, as he arrives at this place, he recognizes it as a place of prayer. So it's somehow people that are seeking God, sitting and, and trying to figure out who God is, praying to God, trying to figure out who he is. Now look at verse 13. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So here they are. They're gathered on the Sabbath day. That's the day they're meeting. Again, this is a strange thing that this has taken place because in Philippi, it was not, uh, it was not predominantly Jews. There, there were a small Jewish population. There may have been a synagogue there. It most likely would have been hard to find. This is why they're probably gathered on the riverside. And, and the fact that they were meeting here gives us a clue that there might have been some affinity to Jewish culture, even though she was likely uh, not a Jew. Lydia would have been very familiar with the, the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so here you have her most likely reading the Torah, the first five books, and trying to figure it out. And she most likely got to a point where she realized, I can't do this. I can't obey these laws that God has in place. I can't accomplish all these things that God is telling me I must do. So most likely these ladies, as they're sitting there, they're speculating, what do we, how do we have this relationship with God? We need a redeemer. So this is sort of like a bunch of people in our culture saying, how do we know more about God? Well, let's just look at the Christian bookstore. Or let's look at Walmart and figure out what the best uh, New York Times bestseller Christian books are, and we'll just try to figure it out, right? But you really need someone to explain the gospel to you. And so this is what happens. They're gathered around the, the, the riverside, and they meet some church planners, Paul, Silas, and Luke. And as this happens, I want you to see something miraculous takes place. Acts 16, verse 14. It says, the second part, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, in her whole household, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And then it records, and she prevailed upon us. Now, I love this because Paul meets her where she's at. She's a lady who is wealthy, and she's even spiritual. 
Um, but Paul knew that she needed the main thing, which was the gospel. We don't know much about the dialogue. That's not recorded. That's not the most important thing. But what we do know that is important that, that Luke does tell us is that God opens her heart, which, by the way, should be a, a, a courage for all of us here this morning. That salvation is a miraculous act that only God can do. Salvation happens when the Holy Spirit pursues you, when Christ sought you, when Christ bought you. And in order for you as a dead person in your sins to understand the beauty of what Christ did on the cross, that he died on the cross for you, the Holy Spirit of God has to open your heart to understand it because your dead heart cannot understand it. None of you this morning who are believers in Christ became believers in Christ on your own. It started with a work, a sovereign act of a, of a perfect and wonderful and loving God who pursued you. It's just like what Jesus says to his disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you to bear fruit. This is what God did to this woman's life. She's sitting by the riverside. She hears the gospel. And what happens? Was it Paul that led her? No, it was God who opened her heart. And so this gives us courage this morning. Because we go and we might share with people all day long about the gospel. And we can be as faithful and we should be as faithful that we could possibly be. We should, we should obey what Jesus says to share the gospel with every living creature. We should do that. But as we do that, we are going to receive tremendous obstacles. But there is no obstacles that God cannot break. And that's what we see with Lydia. And that's what we see every single day. Some of you might share the gospel with people that maybe they have an obstacle. Man, they are just extremely intellectual, extremely skeptical of of any type of faith. But if God opens their heart, they will receive the gospel. Maybe some of you have shared the gospel with people who have been hurt by the church, maybe being abused, maybe some hardships have happened, they just can't trust God. But listen, if God can, if you share the gospel with them and be faithful, allow God to open their heart, he will. And then maybe some of you, man, you're just, you're trying to share the gospel and someone is just in deep-rooted sin, and they just seem hopeless. There's just no way they're going to get out of that sin. Let me tell you, if you preach the gospel to them, God can open their heart and God can change them. And we don't have a formula of how God opens people's hearts. He just does it in his sovereign will because he's good. But we just have to be faithful to share the gospel. And you say, man, I've never seen God open someone's heart this way and they respond this way. Man, I would just tell you, if, if you want to see that happen, keep preaching the gospel. And I can promise you this, the more you preach the gospel, the more you'll see God open hearts because that's just what he does. When you preach the gospel, God opens hearts. And this is what we see happen throughout the life of the church. And this is our encouragement this morning because, man, you can just be as faithful as possible, but it's always the work of God. And so it's just all you have to do is you're called to be faithful. And God is the one who does the work. So that should encourage us this morning. It encouraged Paul and it encouraged Lydia because it changed her life because that is what how she became a believer. And after she was a believer, what does it say? She was baptized, which by the way, if you're a believer in Christ, you should make the same step that Lydia makes. And we should make the same step. We'll even see a Philippian jailer later on the text. He makes the same step of obedience because it's saying what Christ has done to me matters. And I want to display it to the world. And that's how we know that Lydia was legit in her belief of the gospel. Not only that, but she went and told her household and her whole household was saved. We don't know what a 
exactly what entailed of a household. It doesn't mean that her husband or children, we don't know that uh, uh, exactly, but it could mean her friends, it could mean her uh, uncle, it could mean her granddad or her grandma, but a bunch of people got saved. That's the point. Let me show you what happens next. Now, we don't know how many days happens between Lydia's conversion and the next thing that takes place, but remember, all of this, all of this is happening in Philippi. Look at verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then the text says, and it's interesting, she kept doing this for many days. She's annoying. And then Paul, and this is what it says, having become greatly annoyed, turned aside and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So this is what happens. This slave girl is the next person that we see Paul and Silas be in contact with. And what happens is she's completely opposite of Lydia. Lydia was a woman who was well-established. She was wealthy. She was intellectual. She was uh, a seeker of God. The slave girl was poor. She was crazy. She didn't have an honest living. She was spiritually oppressed. Nothing alike, but they all have the same need. They all need to be healed by the gospel. But don't miss how this girl was impacted. For Lydia, Paul had a conversation to reach her heart and her mind. And, and he's literally asking questions about the scripture and debating truth. But, but what happens to the slave girl? Paul just goes right to the heart of the matter. She's uh, oppressed or possessed by an evil spirit that needs to leave. And we don't know what happens to this girl. We don't know if she becomes a believer. We don't know if she gets baptized. We don't know if she joins a church. The text doesn't show us. But again, this is just showing you the power of God's work. And it just also shows you that none of us are beyond being saved. None of us are beyond being healed by the work of God. And I tell you that this morning, friends, as, as a plea for you. Because some of you are here maybe this morning, and you're, to, and you're so busy trying to hide your sin because you think that, man, if, I'm, if I confess my sin, no one can handle it. The stuff I'm going to is just so deep. It's too dark. No one would understand it. No one will resonate it. No one will accept me. Everyone will reject me. Maybe you even think God's that way. Maybe you think, man, if I, if I come clean with this sin, if I bring this sin out, God will reject me. Not that he already knows, by the way. But maybe you try to hide that from God. Maybe you try to do good works to overcompensate for the stuff that's in your life, thinking that that's what's going to appease God rather than surrendering to the Lord. But look what's happening with this slave girl. Everything's just out in the open. But there's something that's kind of beautiful about that because there's healing there in the the openness. It's not hidden in the dark. And her need is very clear. But what happens, God meets her where she is. The demon is cast out. And so for this girl, all of her baggage was out in the open, but that's how she was healed. So you have these two contrasting people, Lydia and the slave girl, and they all have the same need. They all need to be healed by the Redeemer. Now you think that Paul and Silas' life would have been easier after getting rid of the crazy girl that's following them around and yelling them at all day. Certainly life's going to be easier now, but it actually gets worse. Look at what happens in verse 19. 
But when her owners saw, their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are uh, disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, here's what I want you to see. Paul and Silas, faithful to the gospel, um, this slave girl's healed. They're thrown into prison. And I want you to see the next character is this, this Philippian jailer. This Philippian jailer would have been under Roman authority, Roman influence. Philippi was like a mini Rome because it mirrored a lot of the ways that Rome acted out specifically in, author- in authoritative ways. In fact, uh, it, it, uh, Philippi was a military city. It had 42 years before Christ. It was a crucial battle that took place in Philippi, pretty, perhaps one of the most significant in, in all of Roman history. And so there were many soldiers that were there in Rome, and one of them would have been this Philippian, uh, uh, Philippian jailer. And this Philippian jailer would have been so loyal to Rome that he would have mirrored a lot of what, how Philippi acted, which is you don't oppose what we do. You don't oppose our customs. And so let me give you a picture of what this man would have been like. So loyal to Rome that he would have given his life for it. So loyal to Rome that if anyone would try to, anyone successfully escaped from prison, he would literally be forced to kill himself. Or if he didn't, they would have given him the most gruesome death. And he would have defended Rome like his life depended on it because his life depended on it. All he knows is to be under Rome and obey them like a robot. And so what happens next? The text tells us, and I love how the story unfolds, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I love the contrast between what we see in verses 20 through 24 and then verses 25. Here you have Paul and Silas literally beaten with rods by a crowd, by an angry mob of people. And they're thrown in prison. And what are they doing in prison? They're praying and they're singing. And other people are there to witness. And then verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. This is why I want you to sing loudly. Praises to our God and King every morning. Because when you sing loudly, things happen, right? So the foundations of the prisons were, ju- were shaken. I'm kidding. I don't want this place to fall apart. Okay. And, imme- and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. Look at, what he, look at how loyal he is to Rome and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he, took the same, and, and, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire family that he had believed in God. So you see this contrast again, this Philippian jailer. He knows nothing but to be loyal to Rome, but now he... His entire family and maybe even his friends became believers in Christ. And because of time, I can't fully explain what happens next. But it's basically this. Paul and Silas receive favor from the Lord. They're released from prison. They're asked to leave the city. And I want you to see what happens next in verse 40. Verse 40 says, they went out of prison and visited who? Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We don't have an idea of how many days happened between Lydia's conversion and um, the Philippian jailers. But what we gather from this verse is that from Lydia's conversion, you see people that have become believers all this time through faithful gospel witness. You see stories that probably would have mirrored something similar to the slave girl who had the demon cast out of her. You would have seen all sorts of diverse people coming to the table and being a part of what God's church is supposed to be about. And it really doesn't make sense unless you understand the gospel. Because you think about the relationships. Let's just assume that perhaps the slave girl did become a believer and she did become a part of the church. Think about what Lydia would have to do with a slave girl. Nothing. They, have, they would have nothing in common. Think about the Philippian jailer and his relationship with Lydia. They, they, again, these are small congregations. These aren't large churches. These are small congregations. But we know that the Philippian jailer, jailer and Lydia would have been a part of this church. Think about the relationship they would have. It would, be, it would mean nothing. What is the Philippian jailer, this patriarchal guy, what would he have to do with Bastion? Nothing. Nothing at all. What would he have to do with a slave girl? Nothing at all. In fact, that's the kind of girl that he would arrest. That's the kind of girl, kind of girl he would beat up. Think about all these relationships that would have been formed. And we don't even know. In verse 40, it says, and some of the brothers. We, we just know that there were many people that began to be impacted by the gospel over this small window of time. And they were a part of this church together that Lydia would be hospitable and allow these believers to, to stay in her home so that they can continue to do gospel work. And it just doesn't make sense, but this is what the gospel does to a community. This is how the gospel should build a church. It's not a certain type of person. It's all people. And I think when you see this, it's one of the most beautiful things that you can witness on earth because it's a taste of what we're actually going to see in heaven when we're seated around the throne worshiping Christ forever. I think about it, even what I've seen in, in this church. Not long ago, um, one of our elders um, this summer had a birthday. Kirk Birch had a, had a birthday. He turned 30, right? Um, he's in his 70s. We, we're joking with Kirk. Um, and we all got to share. We all got to stand around Kirk, and we all got to share about how Kirk has made an impact on our life. And he's a humble guy, so he's not, he's just looking down and grinning and tearing up. It was the sweetest thing. But every guy got to share. 
And it got down. I remember uh, I shared, and then people shared after me, and then right at, at the end, uh, Eddie Sandlin was the last person to share. And Eddie Sandlin, young married um, man, uh, met his wife here, got, um, he's just one of our small group leaders, been here since he was a freshman, and now married man, pregnant one day, right? Um, I'm putting him on the spot. Um, and so here he is in his late 20s, looking at a man in his 70s, and he shares all these things about how it, what he loves about Kirk. And he says something odd, and that's not unusual for Eddie. He always says something odd, but this is like a good odd. He looked at Kirk and he said, you're one of my best friends. And I think about that, and it just blew my mind. And I remember thinking back when Eddie even got married in this building, and I look at his groomsmen, and they didn't make sense, Right? Kirk Birch is in his wedding. Adam Motter is in his wedding. Aaron Keener is in his wedding. All these different guys that have nothing in common, not with age, not with backgrounds, not with stories. There's no affinity that they have other than one thing, the gospel. And when you see that, it is a beautiful picture. I just did a wedding yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with the, the, and I know everyone in the wedding, I've done, I think I did all but one of their weddings in the, in the groomsmen party, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching all of these guys that I've seen become believers, that they've become believers in the last few years, and now they're like rallied together for the guy that got married, Casey. He does, um, he does some of the uh, slides and sound in the back. His wife actually sings. So, hey, if you want to, you know, meet someone, that's a good way that you can serve the church and you can sing and the, maybe you, you never know the person that's behind the sound, but you never know, you know, how God will work. But, but we see this couple and we're just amazed. And I'm looking at these groomsmen and they have nothing in common. It makes no sense. I know, I know these men, and I know their stories, and I know what kind of music they like, and I know what kind of things they like to do as hobbies, and none of them are alike. They're all different. But what is the one thing that rallies them together? It's the gospel. And it's one of the most beautiful things that you could witness. And when, when you look at these dudes, and they walk out to be a part of that wedding, they're the most ragtag group of guys you ever see. But there's something so beautiful about it, because only in the gospel does that kind of relationship become true and authentic and real. The gospel brings about relationships that really make no sense. And so there's a few things I want you to, to have in this text. There's a few things I want you to see. Is you, I want you just to think about for a moment. This, these are the people that Paul is talking to, this diverse group of people that make no sense. That's why they're so dear to his heart. That's why he writes this letter. And 11 years later, he writes to these people Think about it. You're chained to someone. An imperial guard all day long, 24-7. You think, who's the most dearest people that I could possibly think of? He thinks of it 11 years later. 11 years later, he, had, he can't keep up with them the same way we keep up with each other. Paul didn't have a phone. He didn't have text messaging. He doesn't have Marco Polo or Facebook. He can't talk to them in this way. How does he keep up with them? Because they're so dear to his heart because they've had such an impact on his life, and he's had such an impact on their life. So as Paul's writing them, he's thinking of them in this way. And I want you to see this more than anything else this morning, that there's not a type of person that God chooses to use to build his church. It's any type of person. It's any kind of person. Male, 
female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, all people he calls to himself, and they can be a part of the body of Christ. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you resonate with one of the people in the story. Maybe you feel like Lydia. It's like, okay, I'm the, I'm the one who sort of has it all together. I'm the one who says, man, I've got to be the perfect one. I've got to, I'm the one who's always had the A student. I'm the one who's kind of, you know, professionally done all the things that I have to do, but you still feel lost. And I'm telling you, man, the gospel is for you. Christ is calling you. Perhaps you would plead with the Lord that in the same way Lydia opened, God opened her heart, he would open your heart to receive the good news of the gospel. Maybe you identify with the slave girl. Maybe you're saying, the stuff I have is so dark and it's so deep. There's no way I'll be accepted. There's no way I'll be loved. You just give yourself over more and more to sin and more and more to shame and you hide yourself. I'm going to tell you this morning there's hope here in the gospel. Maybe you're like the Philippian jailer. I, I can think, I think about so many people that come through the doors of this church, and I can just see them as this person. Doesn't have any understanding of church culture. Doesn't have any understanding of the Bible. He doesn't know the difference between the Old and New Testament. He doesn't know who the disciples are. He wouldn't know any of these things. Any of these things. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're saying... I'm just so caught up in what the world has to offer and the world, like this, this guy's loyal to Rome. Maybe you're saying, man, I'm just loyal to my job. I'm just loyal to the, the, the status quo. The gospel can break that down too. The gospel's for you. And so wherever you are this morning, there is not a type of person that God can call to build his church. And I can't help but also being challenged by the beauty of diversity here. And I want us this morning to embrace that as a church. Just like the church of Philippi had to embrace that. In our culture, we can live on islands where we don't have to feel like the pressure to embrace that. But I think what makes the church thrive throughout the world is persecution, and persecution that forces people to gravitate toward one another, and they're forced to deal with diversity. In our culture, we're not forced to deal with diversity. We don't have to do that. We just hang out with the kind of people that we like to hang out with. Well, this person looks like me and talks like me and thinks like me. I want to gravitate toward that person. And how crazy is that, by the way, that we want to hang out with people that are just like us? That just shows you how much you like yourself, right? I like myself so much, I'm going to hang out with myself. But guess what? When that happens, you actually get annoyed with that person. Because you're like, they're not so awesome. That means you're not so awesome, right? You know, it's like the closest people that I've ever been impacted by that have grown with have been people that have nothing in common with but the gospel. And so I'm going to encourage our church Man, embrace that diversity. Embrace that challenge. Embrace that. People of different ethnicities, embrace that. People that come from different backgrounds, embrace that. People with different ages. If you're here this morning and you're like, man, I'm a college student. I don't want to go to a small group because I don't want to be around lame dads. Be around lame dads. Embrace that. 
If you're a lame dad like me, be around college students. Embrace that. If you're an empty nester, be around young families. Embrace that. Look at how the church started. Look at what God did to build his church in Philippi. He, he wants to do it all around the world, and he's doing it all around the world. Embrace that integrity. Let's not get comfortable in our own silos because you won't grow in the gospel that way, in the way that God's intending you to grow. So embrace the beauty of the gospel. This morning, if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be built up and loved, if you want to be challenged, if you want to be um, better equipped for the gospel, you have to begin by seeing yourself as a person that God can use to build his church, seeing yourself as a person that God can use to make an impact on others so that the world might see the gospel. That's my hope, Integrity Church. That's the hope of our elders here. We want to see a church like that. Don't you want to see a church like that, Integrity Church? Don't you want to see that happen here? Good. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of the gospel. The gospel brings people together.